couple of years ago uh, was, uh, well, sorry, from last year, was uh, the story of uh, Philip Green. Philip Green, there he is. Um, the business tycoon, British business tycoon, owner of Topshop and Miss Selfridge and the Arca- CEO of Arcadia and all that. Uh, very rich, very wealthy man. Um, and uh, last year it was revealed that he had taken out uh, a court order, a court injunction, uh, to stop the allegations that were being made against him going public in the press. And so he took out an injunction against the, the Telegraph uh, newspaper. Um, and there was... Um, that uh, the stories got out anyway. Um, the, the revelations were made that he was guilty of a number, well, accused, sorry, let me careful, be careful here, uh, accused of a number of significant and severe allegations ranging from bullying, uh, racial abuse, uh, sexual misconduct. Um, and these allegations come just a number of years after it was revealed uh, his business dealings with BHS came to light, where it made the press that actually over his time as the, the kind of major owner of BHS, he and particularly his whole family had withdrawn £300 million from the company for personal dividends uh, while when the company was to be sold in in 2015 the pension fund for the employees uh, was 345 million in deficit Um, and so last year added further volume to the loud calls that Philip Green should be stripped should be stripped of his knighthood well, that got me thinking, as I kind of read a little bit about that story again, that got me thinking about what, what are the criteria uh, that you need to fulfill to even be considered for a knighthood? And it turns out all the, the questions you should ask are available on the, the UK Honours website. Uh, here, let me give you a sample of some of the questions. Um, has the candidate brought distinction to British life and enhanced its reputation? Have they earned the respect of all their peers? Have they improved the lot of those less able to help themselves? Have they displayed moral courage? Now, as you just read those questions and consider the man on the screen, you can understand, you can, can't you understand why the calls have grown louder and louder that he should be stripped of his knighthood? It's a wonderful privilege. I don't know what you think of the honor system. Let's park that for a moment. It's a wonderful privilege to be given that, that title, that honor, but with the great privilege comes the expectation that you will live in a way that is consistent and appropriate with that privilege. Get the idea? There's an expectation that you should live a life that is consistent and appropriate to the great privilege that you've received. Well, that is the very idea that Paul begins uh, chapter 4 in the second half, second section of the book of Ephesians. Um, Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And it's obvious from that that sentence that we we are diving into the book midway through a long argument. Then, therefore, in light of all the stuff that I've been telling you about, about Jesus and the good news of the gospel, uh, in light of all of that, 
um, I want you to live in a certain way. And in light of all that I've been uh, telling you, in light of all that I've been preaching that's, uh, that's been very unpopular and has landed me in prison, uh, there is a way that I expect you to live in a way that is consistent, appropriate uh, to that privilege. Uh, again, I can't go into uh, Ephesians 1 to 3 and unpack all of those chapters for you right now. Uh, although if you do come along tonight, we're going to be camping out a little bit in Ephesians chapter 1, which is glorious. So if you're free to come and join us, you can get a little bit of the background even tonight. But let me, let me point you to one little section, a couple of verses that do summarize something of the privilege uh, that we can have when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus. Uh, and that's found in those verses, uh, Ephesians 2, verses 19 uh, to 21. And really the the privilege are summarized uh, in sort of three, three pictures, three pictures that are really helpful. What's our privilege? When we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, we become citizens of a new kingdom with Jesus as the king. We then become members of a new family with God as our father, and we become part of a new building, a temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells among us. Let's take our first one, citizens of a new kingdom with God as the king. Now, I want you to imagine just for a moment, and it's not too hard to imagine, to be honest, another refugee crisis. We had the, the Syrian refugee crisis not so long ago. Imagine another one. Let's make up a country, if you'll indulge me. Let's make up a country where there's famine and war. Let's call it Ulandia, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, and there's war there, and there's this massive uh, refugees spill out of the country, and they make their way across Europe. And they all start camping out in Calais. And the British government is moved by compassion to help these Ulandians uh, on the port of Calais. And they say, we will help their plight by permitting 10,000 of them to come and live in the UK. We'll give them full citizenship, full rights, full privileges. They can come, come here uh, and join us. But imagine of those 10,000 people that join the UK, uh, 20 of them start a crime syndicate and it becomes known in the press. Only 20. But what do you think that would do for the reputation of all the Ulandians? What do you think that would do for, to discredit the decision-making of the government? The Daily Express would have a field day, wouldn't it? Um, you see, if you receive such a privilege to get membership and all the privileges and rights of being a citizen of the country, there's an expectation that you will live in a way that is consistent and appropriate with that privilege. The second picture, the picture of members of a new family with God as the Father. Um, this, uh, this, this week I was uh, learning a little bit about uh, Timpsons. Um, you know Timpsons? Key cutters, shoe repairers, you know the folks. Uh, there's up in Nocknagunny, there's one all over the place. I, I, I didn't really know anything about the company until this week. Uh, that is, what, it's, it's a family firm, family company. It's been running now for over 100 years and consistently for the past 20, think about this, the past 25 years, it has been in the top 10 best companies to work for in the UK. 
After they take their, their, their profit and reinvest, they work out what is the maximum that we can pay our staff, and they do that. Uh, they have a hardship fund. If you uh, become ill uh, and can, are struggling financially, they will, they will pay for your operation. Um, they have, think about this, folks, a final salary pension. Wow. So it all goes pear-shaped here. Um, I'm going there, okay? I'm going to work for Timpsons. Uh, but one of the things they do, one of the things they do, and this is very, very unusual, one of the things they do is that they employ way more than you would expect ex-cons, giving them a second chance. But imagine that one of the ex-cons is caught red-handed stealing from the, from the family company. Wouldn't that discredit all the other ex-cons? Wouldn't people out there go, well, you should have expected that, the Timpsons are so naive. Wouldn't it actually inhibit, possibly in the future, other ex-cons been hired? No, if you receive that privilege, there's an expectation that you will live consistently with it in light of it. Or the third one, built together as a new temple in which the Spirit dwells. Uh, people are traveling around the globe uh, to various places to see if they can connect with the divine. They can have some experience of the transcendent. But here's the privilege that each one of us who've trusted in Jesus have this morning, that the creator of the universe is here with us right now. Isn't that an amazing thought? Here with us right now in order to bless us. That's the privilege that we have. And the logic of Ephesians is that in light of all of those privileges that you've got, the expectation then would be that you would live in a way that is consistent with that, that is appropriate to that wonderful privilege that you have been given. And the word that Paul actually uses in Ephesians 4 verse 1, live a life, translated in English, is actually one word. It's the word to walk. Walk in a way that's worthy of the privilege that you have received. So what are the steps then that we need to take to walk worthy of the privilege? What does that look like? What does it look like to walk worthy uh, of our privilege? Well, three steps. There's more, of course, in this whole section, but three steps for walking uh, in the, uh, worthy of the, the great privilege we've received is, number one, live in unity. Number two, contribute your ministry. And then thirdly, grow in maturity. First then, live in unity, uh, verses 2 to 6. Paul has previously summarized his master, God's master plan for human history uh, in this book already. Back in chapter 1, uh, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes this, He, that is God, made known to us the mystery of his will, that is his master plan, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time reached, times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and uh, on earth under Christ. God's master plan is to take this decaying, dysfunctional, uh, divided world and to bring unity, 
harmony and peace under the uncontested rule of King Jesus. That is God's master plan. Um, And Paul is saying, uh, as we get to Ephesians 4, Paul is saying that that master plan uh, should be glimpsed in the local church. The local church should be the place where God's master plan to unite all things under Christ is revealed to the world. Uh, so many of you will have seen you know, a building estate being put up, contractors building a whole series of houses on an estate. And in this messy building uh, site, there often is one house that is finished, fitted out, and furnished to be a show house. In the midst of all the chaos, there's one show house where you can get a glimpse of what the whole estate is going to be like. And Paul's point is that the church should be the show house for God's master plan. That in the church, God is breaking down barriers. In the first century, it was barriers between Jew and Gentile. Today, we can see clearly it's barriers between all nationalities all over the world. People from different backgrounds, socially, economically, politically. People from different races, different genders, different persuasions. All been brought together supernaturally by the grace and the kindness of God. And you catch a little glimpse of that if you just look around. Look around. Even in this room, you see there's, there's people here at one level, at one level, have virtually nothing in common. And yet wonderfully have the most important things of all in common together because of what God has done in our lives. We begin to see God at work here, breaking down barriers. Um, but of course, the beauty of the church, this, this supernatural bringing together of a whole different range of different people, uh, young and old from different stages in life, different backgrounds, uh, the beauty of the church is also the problem of the church, isn't it? If you stop and think about it. It's because we're so diverse, it's because we're so different, that it's so, and, and if we're expected to live up close beside each other, well, that's just a recipe for strife and uh, annoying each other and offending each other and misunderstanding each other. To live in unity then is going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But that's what we're called to do. And Paul, he's a, look, Paul is a wise pastor. He's a wise pastor, so he gives the recipe for how we are to nurture and foster unity together. Um, and he uses these three words, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. How do we foster unity together? First, we need to be humble. Now, being humble is not about being shy. Uh, being humble in the New Testament, particularly if you look at passages like Philippians 2, being humble is the attitude that you will consider the needs of other people above your own. Being humble in the New Testament is always relational, considering other people uh, and their interests above your own. Um, It's about curbing our sense of entitlement uh, in order to nurture care for other people. C.S. Lewis, I I love this we quote to C.S. Lewis. uh, Forgive me if I've quoted to you before, uh, where he says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. I think that's brilliant. 
considering the needs of other people above your own. That's the first essential ingredient for unity. Second ingredient then, be gentle, literally be meek. And I think as we read the, either, either of those two words, gentle or meek, we think weak, doormat, passive. Oh, we don't want, we don't want that. Thanks very much. Um, but really in the, in the New Testament, the word gentle or meek is really this idea of strength and power under control. Strength and power under control. The word was sometimes used of a horse when it was broken in and tamed. Great strength. But when the bit and the bridle and the saddle are on, uh, it's under control. That's what we're called to be like, gentle. Um, uh, we are called to deal with one another kindly, not roughly. We're called to draw alongside each other and give quiet encouragement not demanding or critical or certainly not bullying in any way. We're called to be humble and gentle. And then thirdly, we're called to be patient. Called to be patient. Uh, Being patient means not retaliating when you're offended or insulted. Uh, Patient means uh, being long-suffering with the faults and failings uh, of other people uh, around you. Being courteous Uh, and gracious to those who are, in your mind, awkward, uh, rude, or lazy? Are you going to suffer a long time with them? Be gracious to them. Now, even as I just described those three words, it's obvious this is not going to come naturally. It certainly doesn't come naturally to me, does it? Um, And I suspect that I'm not alone here. Uh, This is something that's going to take supernatural help with but Paul, I think, gives, uh, in back, just before we turn, go on, uh, Paul, in verses, at the end of verse 2 and in verse 3, uh, reminds us and gives us, I think, the key f- that can help us uh, to foster uh, humility and gentleness and patience in our lives. And that is to bear with one another in love. To bear with one another in love. You see, when someone lets you down, when someone offends you, when someone mistreats you, or someone excludes you, you have a choice at that moment. You have a choice. Perhaps there's even a particular incident that's coming into your mind. You have a choice now. You can either dwell on them and what they've done. After all the things I did for them, I put myself out that time, remember, for them. I lent them money or I did this or that. It's just scandalous what they've done to me. Perhaps you, if you dwell on them and what they've done, that is a recipe for resentment. Uh, it's a recipe for bitterness. You will end up shunning them and that you will end up speaking badly about them to others behind their back. That's inevitably what will happen if you choose option A, to to dwell on them and what they've done. But Paul says that we are, we're, there's another option. We are to dwell on God. We're to dwell on God uh, and remember his love for us. Remember that you are loved by a father who chose you when you didn't deserve it, who forgave you at the cost of his own son, 
whom you have let down a million times by repeating the same old offenses over and over and over again. And yet, how does he treat you? How does he treat you? Does he say, well, that's it. We're done now. You've crossed the line. He never does that. He treats us with gentleness, patience, and grace. And as you fill your mind with the love of God and what, how he has treated you, it will enable you to treat others in the same way. As we bear with one another in love. Living in unity is extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult. But it is possible, as we can see from these verses, it is possible because uh, there's something different about our church family than, than about any other club or society in the world. We are not called to create unity. By, we're not called to create unity by the statements that we release, uh, the, the, the events we put on or the activities we do together. We're not called to create unity. No, uh, unity has been created among us by the three persons of the Trinity. And our job is to maintain it. I wonder, did you notice uh, as we looked uh, at those verses, there's, um, as we get down a little bit further, we'll see the, the, the reference to what, all the ones. You see, spot them when we read through? One God, one Lord, one Spirit. We have one God and Father. And as we'll hear a little bit more tonight, the God who chose us and brought us into his family. And therefore, that means that the, the, the Christian that is a bit annoying to you at the moment in your home group or the one that you're sitting next to now in church, that is someone that the Father has also chosen. So who are you to disregard or exclude them? Get the idea? One Lord. We put our faith uh, in the forgiveness that has been provided for the Lord Jesus, and we are cleansed. We're cleansed by him. And he, of course, is the model of self-sacrificial love, isn't he? And as we consider what he has done, that binds us together. And we have one spirit, one spirit, who indwells each and every one of us, opening our eyes and giving us the same motivations and promptings, bringing us together. It is possible, you see, to live in unity with one another through the help and with the help Uh, of the Holy Spirit uh, himself. Since God himself is a unity of persons who are different but equal and oriented towards one another in love, so the Holy Spirit will help us to become a church that is a unity of equal but different persons who are oriented towards one another in love and service. Unity is possible. Unity is possible through the work of God. The first step then we've got to take uh, in walking a, a life worthy of the gospel and the great privileges that we've received is to live in, maintain unity. Second step um, is to contribute uh, your ministry. Contribute your ministry. Verses 7 down to 12. Um, when we use the word unity, it's, it's very easy to confuse that word with uniformity. 
uh, that we're all called to be the same. So there's a picture of the North Korean army all dressed exactly the same, all listening to exactly the same music, all walking in exactly the same direction, keeping exactly uh, the same steps with each other. But that is not, that is not what, what Paul has for us. That's not the, the, the picture of unity. Uh, it's unity in the middle of diversity. In the middle of diversity. Uh, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And so Paul is saying that each and every one of us who've put our trust in the Lord Jesus have been given a gift, a unique gift. Now, the word grace is used in a couple of different ways in the book of uh, Ephesians. It is sometimes used to describe God's saving grace that he sent his son to die for us and by faith alone in Christ alone, through grace alone, we are rescued from the coming judgment. That is God's saving grace. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Just look at the the next verse. He goes on to clarify what, or just, uh, if you go back, George, just uh, to verse 8. The grace that he's talking about here is his additional kindness by giving gifts to his people. Giving gifts, skills, and talents, and abilities uh, to his people. Now, he quotes there from Psalm uh, 68. I don't have time to go into the, the complexities of that quote. Uh, but in the context in Psalm 68, uh, it's, uh, the, the psalmist has been talking there about uh, God's, and celebrating God's rescue of his people from the, their slavery in Egypt and how God is pictured in that psalm as a victorious warrior who's fought on behalf of his people and then shares the spoils of war with his people. That's the picture. And as Paul reads Psalm 68, now this side of the death uh, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the ascension of the Lord Jesus, Paul clearly sees that this was anticipating looking forward to uh, Jesus who would fulfill these words. So verse 9, and what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Jesus is the one who descended in order to die, suffer and die for his people, to bear the penalty of the sin they deserved. But yet he was raised again and ascended Uh, He's the the risen king and ruler. And as the risen king and ruler, by his Holy Spirit now, he he shares the spoils of victory with his church. He gives gifts to the church. Now, if you stop and think about that, just for a moment, Jesus is the risen, uh, ascended king, the most powerful being in the universe. And he could give us anything, anything, what would you want him to give? What would you want him to give you? Wouldn't an option be money? Imagine what we could do with lots and lots, like a limitless supply of money. Imagine the events and courses that we could put on. Imagine the literature that we could produce 
Imagine what we could do with all the money. He could, he's, he could give us money, of course. What about miracles? Wouldn't that be great? Imagine we could all like march up and you know divide into you know three or four or many hospitals there are in Belfast. You know, go to the Royal and and the City and the Ulster, and we just all march up there. And anyone who is sick, they get immediately healed. Anyone who is diseased gets an immediate cure. I think that that would get people's attention, wouldn't it? Whole hospitals were emptied. Jesus could do that. Of course, he could. He could give us money, he could give us miracles, but what does he give us? What does, he, what, what does the risen Lord Jesus give to the church? Well, it's there in verse 11. So Christ himself gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor, teachers, to equip people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Well, to be honest, it's a bit underwhelming, isn't it, if I'm honest? Uh, he gives Bible teachers. Bible teachers. Uh, he gives apostles. They're the, those first disciples uh, who witnessed his resurrection, uh, who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, wrote down, with, with the help of the, the early prophets, the New Testament prophets, wrote what we have in the New Testament. And then you've got the evangelists, those who, are ta- who take the message of the apostles and their eyewitness testimony uh, and the message that they have and then they proclaim it to the world so that people are converted. And pastor teachers who again take God's word um, and I think pastor teachers, they're linked. There's probably one office that he has in mind there. Pastor teachers, those who teach God's word to strengthen, nourish, encourage, challenge and inspire God's people and to strengthen their faith. Again, it, it's a bit underwhelming, isn't it? That's what God gives. That's what the Lord Jesus has chosen to give as a gift to the church. And even then, and even then, some churches get John Piper, some churches get Tim Keller, you know, and you're left looking at this, you know, thinking, you know, is there a gift receipt, you know? Can I get maybe exchange this one? Um, but look, look on. I know it initially looks underwhelming. Initially it looks incredibly underwhelming. But look at the process that is set up by God giving Bible teachers to the church to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. It's a bit like dominoes. When the Bible teachers do their work and proclaim the word of God to God's people, what does it do? It mobilizes God's people and builds up the church. Builds up the church. The picture picture you're meant to have here is that church is not like, is not like a bus tour. Most of us have been on a bus tour, even as maybe just a, a school trip. On a bus tour, you know, everyone gets on, they take their seat, and there's a couple of people at the front who kind of do all the work. You know, there's the bus driver, there's the tour guide, but everyone else is just sort of sitting back, relaxing and enjoying the journey. That is, that would, just notice there's no full stop between verse 11 and verse 12. There's no full stop there. It's not that the pastor teachers do all the ministry, the work of the gospel. 
No, no, they equip the saints to do the work of the gospel. All of us are to play our part. The picture of the church is far more like the picture of an orchestra. Yes, you'll probably need a conductor, you know, to make sense of the score uh, and to help interpret the music and to bring the right section in at the right time, but the conductor cannot play all the instruments. That is impossible. The conductor can't play all the instruments. And if some people refuse to play their part, then we lose something of the music, don't we? We lose something if everyone doesn't play their part. And that is the picture that we're to have of the church. The church is to be an orchestra. Each, God has gifted each one of us with unique gifts that when encouraged and inspired by those who teach God's word and remind, them, uh, remind us uh, of uh, the Great Commission uh, and remind us of what God calls from us, and then as each person goes off and plays their part, does their role, then the church uh, is built up. Now, what could be some of the roles? What, what does ministry in the church look like? Well, it could be lots of different things, couldn't it? It could be uh, serving on the music uh, here. It could be helping with AV. It could be helping in the creche. It could be cooking for people. It could be hosting a home group. It could be uh, teaching uh, and helping with some of the children's work. It could be hundreds of different things. It could be hundreds of different things. However, I do think that Paul has something particular in mind here for all of us. Um, And I think it's there in verse 15. I think it's there in verse 15. What are we called to do? Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. And what does it mean to speak the truth in love? I don't think it just means tell the truth. I don't think it's less than that, but it doesn't just mean tell the truth. You know, so I ask Ruth, am I going a bit gray? And she hesitates and goes, oh, well, I tell him. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 15. Uh, yeah, you're going gray. And look, while, while, like, while we're at it, you're also losing it, I'm afraid. You know, and it's, it's just bad news for you all around. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that. Uh, to speak the truth in love means really to speak gospel truth, scripture truth, God's truth to one another, to one another. The truth is we find this hard, don't we? We find this difficult. Look, we could talk for hours. I think most of us could talk for hours about sport or travel. Uh, we could talk for hours about the books we're reading, the polit- politics of the day. We could talk for hours about the music, m- movies we're watching, the music we're listening to, the, the best places to eat out. We could talk for hours about all those things. We could talk for hours about trainers or watches. We could talk for hours about all those things. Um, but talking about the Lord Jesus, talking about the grace of God, talking about the wisdom of God, to one another. That's hard, actually. That's hard. It doesn't come naturally. And here's what Paul wants all of us to be doing. And so when we're at tea and coffee and someone says that they're having a particular health problem or they're under real pressure at, um, at work or home, will we speak the truth in love to them? And remind them of God's goodness and his, uh, his wisdom 
remind them that God is with them even in the difficult times? Will we, will we speak the truth in love to them? If we're in a home group setting and someone talks about a really difficult decision, a real dilemma that they're stuck in, yes, of course, of course you want to listen and of course you need to be careful and compassionate. But at some point, will you speak the truth in love to them? Remind them of the wisdom of God. Remind them of God's priorities. Remind them of an eternal perspective. Uh, and, and to help them make the decision uh, in the way that is the wisest according to Scripture. Will we speak the truth in love to one another? And look, I'm not just saying that you need just like a list of Bible verses in your pocket, you know, and you just say, you know, do not be anxious about anything. But uh, It's not just that you have just quote Bible verses at people. It's really, Paul. what Paul has in mind here is that as we come and gather Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, and as we open up God's word and we study it together, all of the encouragement that we give, all of the suggestions that we make, all of the wisdom that we try to contribute are all just so saturated in a scriptural worldview, so wedded to the gospel, that while we don't quote Bible verses at people, nevertheless we are speaking the truth in love to one another. And as we do that, Paul wants you to see that this is not just something that would be nice, but Paul stresses the fact that this is absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential we'll do this. It's not just that we'll be a little less mature if we're not doing this. Look at verse 14. It's that we might not even survive as Christians if we are not all equipped to speak the truth in love to one another. Look at verse 14. Uh, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemes. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? Think of the most vulnerable person you can imagine, a little baby. Think of the most dangerous place you could put them, in a boat, on their own, in a storm. Okay? The, the, the real danger in that scenario is not that they might not grow up uh, to become fully successful people. The real danger in that picture is that they might not survive at all. They might not survive at all. That's what Paul has in mind here. We need to help as we all contribute to one another in the life of this church, speaking the truth in love to one another, we will help each other survive in a hostile world. Lastly, and very, very briefly, uh, unity, live in unity, contribute your ministry, and then verse uh, number three, grow in maturity. Grow in maturity. Uh, I forgot to put the the quote uh, on the PowerPoint here, but uh, I read from Richard Koken in the excellent little book where I've nicked some of these titles from uh, that some of you have as home group leaders, uh, Ephesians for you. He writes this, Unity in diversity uh, unity in diversity and busy with ministry are not all that Paul wants. Rather, he wants us to grow up in maturity and Christ-likeness. Uh, It's there in verses uh, 12 and 13. So that, here's the reason uh, I want you to be doing all those things. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, 
attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul's burning ambition for them is that they will become more like the Lord Jesus, mature, more like the Lord Jesus in the way that they live their lives. But I just want you to note, just in passing, that Paul sees this growing in maturity as a community endeavor until we all reach. And I've talked to lots and lots of people who say, I like Jesus. I listen to lots of online sermons. I read lots of online articles. I listen through YouTube to all the best worship music. I am growing. I am mature as a Christian. Paul would say, "Uh, uh, nope, nope. You're a spiritual baby. You're a spiritual baby. Until you understand that the only way you can become mature, it's as you um, contribute your gifts serving others and speaking the truth in love in the context of a church family. That's the only way you can become mature as we live our lives together, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. So as we close, Paul has been sharing in this book the wonderful privileges that are ours when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus. We're citizens of a new kingdom, members of a new family, part of a new building that God is building where he'll dwell among us. Live worthy of that amazing privilege. What does that look like? Live in unity. Contribute your ministry here among us and grow in maturity. Let me pray for us.